Hello, welcome ladies and gentlemen to the Renaissance podcast episode nine, I think. Um, an interesting um, kind of funny full circle backstory to this one. I'm recording this in uh, 1611 Studios in Toronto. Um, the regular viewers will remember uh, I did a podcast here a few months ago um, with Ash Martis. Um, and um, while I was recording the podcast in this studio, um, I happened to meet uh, a guy called Jack Purdy outside the outside the studio while I was waiting to start. Had this big tap on the shoulder and he goes, you like deals, kid? I got a deal for you. We started talking about this microbes deal um, and flash forward several months later, we're back here. Um, Jack and I kept talking, um, hence how you and I started talking as well, Tim. And um, here we are talking about fixed earth slash my globe um, slash Pedro resources and um, what we're doing with this new entity um, and this wonderful technology. So um, thank you very much for joining us, Tim. Um, Tim Ropas, um, who is president of Fixed Earth Resources, uh, the owner of this wonderful IP that we've come across. Um, so thank you for joining us, Tim. Welcome. Yeah, it's uh, great, great to meet. And I love talking about this stuff. So uh, these are always fun. So awesome, awesome, awesome. So if you wouldn't mind um, just filling us in kind of briefly on your on your background, um, like what drove you to uh, well, what got you to what got you to where you're at now, essentially? Like, where do you come from from an educational background? And then talk us talk us through a little bit of your career and your passions um, and, and how that's brought you to this point. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, like so many scientists, it's been a, a beloved ever since uh, elementary school, really. Um, I, I grew up in the East Coast U.S. in the Philadelphia area. Um, which is, you'll see, some of that comes full circle to some of the pollutants we work on and why we work on them. Um, so education-wise, uh, I did my bachelor's degree at a small college, Elmira College in upstate New York uh, in biochemistry. Um, and from there, kind of said, okay, I knew I wanted to go to grad school, and it really kind of became, well, where, right? So I started looking at Canada, looking for research programs I, I liked, um, I've always kind of really loved things that live where they shouldn't, um, which, again, as I'm sure we'll talk about a lot, is really still the core of what I do. Um, I found this research program at the University of Saskatchewan looking at microbes that help plants survive on oil sands tailings. Um, you know, you have these vast deserts that are repel water, have trace hydrocarbon contamination, uh, low in nutrients, and yet microbes could help them survive in this place. Um, so spent, of course, you know, my master's degree in biology working on that. Love soil science involved in that as well. And after that, uh, like so many others uh, in this part of the world, uh, found work in northern Alberta, northern British Columbia, working in oil field work. Um, but I was on the environmental side, but dealing with oil spills, so tanker trucks flipped over and on fire, uh, saltwater spills, all sorts of things, and uh, built a team of 11 people at a small company uh, doing anything from drills to take soil samples to 3 a.m. phone calls for emergencies, uh, kind of you name it. Um, I kind of always found myself cycling back to say, wanting to go back to microbes, wanting to go back to using these tools to help fix these types of problems, oil spills and, and revegetating old sites. So uh, 
Fixer is just about four years old now and uh, doing doing this full time now. Nice, nice. So um, clearly always had a passion for um, environmental issues, sustainability. Um, how did, I mean, you started working in the oil and gas industry, as you said, like, how did you find the kind of reception within the industry for this type of stuff? Were you, was it, you were coming at it from a point of view of like, let's be more preventative, I guess, in, in our kind of, in how we treat the environment. And, and I guess the people you were probably working for at the time were more reactionary. Would that be fair to say? It's definitely a mixed bag. Um, it's a big industry with a lot of characters. Um, you have some that are really receptive and want to try new things. And we're always really grateful for those clients and those those individuals. Um, and you know, others that are really recalcitrant. And, and they just, the old ways work for them and, and changes until someone else has taken the risk and shown it works over and over and over. Uh, they're they're gonna they're gonna be waiting. Um, you know the biggest thing in oil and gas, uh, especially in this part of the world, is the solutions you come up with as alternatives have to compete with the current and be incentivized right. to do that. So right now, I mean, you take an oil spill in this part of the world. The for the viewers, the solution is to dig it up and you haul that contaminated soil to a landfill, and it'll sit there for the rest of time. Right, it's not being treated. Nothing's happening. It just goes in a pile. Yeah, uh, I would say kind of when you're a kid and you're told to clean your room and you shove all your dirty laundry in your closet, it's kind of like that, right? The room's clean, but you haven't really dealt with the problem. Right. Um, so it's kind of that, right? And so it's having real world access to industry as an innovator. Um, you you know what you need to do to actually solve the problem. Okay, we have to be cost effective. It has to be easy to implement. Um, you know, it can't be so complex that no one can understand it um and that's driven a lot of how we operate as a company to make sure these kind of abstract technologies bacteria fungi electricity all of this has to be accessible and applicable yeah 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 indeed and um i i have to say like i so i've um i kind of as a consultant and sort of venture type startup kind of guy and been in the space for a long time like I've always kind of steered towards trying to seek out interesting new technologies which have kind of a positive impact on the planet um and I when I when I came across this and started learning about it um it wasn't really something that I'd I'd heard of before it sounds almost kind of science fiction type type stuff when you when you when you say to people that you're going to deploy some microorganisms into some soil and they're basically going to eat the contaminants um, and then make that land usable again, either as farmland or, 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 or for real estate development or whatever, it, whatever it may be. Um, it sounds, it sounds too absurd to be true. Um, how did, how did you, how did you even come about discovering this stuff in the first place? And is this one of these things, which is, actually existed for a long time but just hasn't really got any traction within industry um or within the public eye yeah i mean it's funny you say sci-fi sometimes you pull up the microscope and you, you see something under there and you just go what on earth is this you, know, you see something <laughs> that just blows your mind and it's it, it, there's still surprises even after decade plus of doing this um i mean so bioremediation and using microbes deep pollution it, is definitely not a new thing. Um, 
you know, people have been doing it in some capacity, I mean, 70s or potentially even earlier. Um, what has really changed in the past, I'd say decade, is the technologies to pair the microbes with. So, I mean, we obviously take a huge amount of pride in making really good microbes uh, that are adapted to local environments and, you know, the tools to find those microbes. But what's equally important for property owners and clients and things is how those microbes are deployed. Right. Um, what technologies do we put them out into the world with? Because if you take a bacteria uh, and you just kind of go dump it on a pile of soil, it's not necessarily going to thrive and it's not necessarily going to do what you want, even if it's a really efficient bacteria that's good at its job um you know a lot of microbes require oxygen to work so how are we providing that oxygen some microbes require different nutrients to go out with them to be really good at eating oil or whatever it is so you have to really understand the need of the microbe and how are we going to take what it needs out into the world because the world is this really wildly unpredictable place uh soil and water and aquifers where you are are obviously very different from from what i am experiencing here in northern british columbia holding yeah. climate uh, all sorts of different things so that's a lot of what we look at when we're looking at sites too is not just um what's the best microbe for the job um and then but also what do we need to take it out uh, in terms of how we find them there's we've kind of focused a lot on how we find microbes. So kind of like I was just kind of alluding to, if, if we find one microbe that can eat, I don't know, pick a pollutant, any pollutant, um, and I take a microbe from here in Northern British Columbia and I try deploying it in Florida, well, there's a whole different world. How, how can that microbe thrive in an environment it's not from? So we instead, how do we find these microbes over and over again? So instead of taking a microbe from British Columbia and deploying it in the, the South, let's just find a microbe that's from the south quickly test it in the lab make sure it works and then that's the microbe we're taking out so some of our case studies as we get talking you know we've done studies in wisconsin edmonton they're using different microbes that are from those places and we've spent a lot of time in the lab developing methods to quickly find microbes to make and make sure they do what we're advertising interesting so would you would you i mean does that go as far as to say like for an, an environment um, kind of ecologically similar to Northern British Columbia, maybe in a completely different part of the world. Um, could you deploy similar microbes in that part of the world or do they always have to be from that exact place? Is it impossible for two places to ever be ecologically identical to the extent that you would need them to be? I mean, you can definitely use microbes over a pretty big region or similar ecosystems, similar chemistries, um, you know, so like the Great Lakes region, you know, for example, we've used microbes over hundreds or thousands of kilometers uh, spaced out because they're it's a similar region, similar geology, similar climate. Um, there's a lot of overlap there. You also occasionally get lucky and you find a microbe that's just so robust it doesn't really care where you put it. Um, so those are great, just kind of on the shelf, general performers. Um, on the plant growth side, we use microbes over a pretty big range. Uh, we use families of microbes that are found globally, all seven continents. And, you know, we can take those and deploy them just about anywhere because that genus, that family of microbes can thrive just about anywhere you put it. Got it. Okay. 
So let's dive into some some like some use cases for this. Um, so talk us through like some of the major studies that you've done, if you can, what your findings have been from them um, and uh, and and the kind of results that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start with one of our, of course, favorite, one of my favorite topics is this family of chemicals called PFAS. Um, the scientific name is poly and perfluoroalkyl substances. It's a mouthful. Uh, in the media, you'll usually hear them referred to as forever chemicals. And the reason for that is they're really hard to break down. Um, the chemistry behind it, I'll, I'll avoid because this is not that crowd, but um, <laughs> More or less, when you walk into a room and you say, hey, we, we think we can break these things down with biology, there's a lot of people who say, that's a big claim. There's a lot of proof that be, you need to generate there. Yeah. Um, so we, we've kind of found our first microbe that could you know, thrive when it's fed this pollutant back in 2019. Um, and of course, finding the first adopters of these technologies, when you find something new in the lab, it's, it can be a little challenging to find someone to give it a try. So. Um, through some others in our organization, uh, we did a lot of cold calling. Um, you get laughed off the phone <laughs> a number of times. Uh, but finally, we ended up actually working with the state of Michigan. Uh, was one of the first ones to say, okay, maybe, maybe you're not crazy. Um, and we actually spent a year in the lab working with the state, kind of running through all their what ifs. Um, can you prove, how do you prove you're breaking down this pollutant and not just hiding it from the test, um, you know, going through all these different, what's the optimum conditions for this microbe, all of that. Uh, and we were seeing great results in the lab. I mean, 90, 95% removals in a couple of weeks when we were taking a, a, a jar of polluted water, adding microbes and then seeing the result. Um, and then a year later, we're finally able to take that out to the field, right? You know, there's this site in Northern Michigan uh, called Alpena, Michigan, that, an old site where they had a fire. And for those not familiar with PFAS, their main, one of the main sources of them is firefighting foam. So you've probably seen pictures of an airplane fire or a big industrial fire where they put that white soap bubbles everywhere. Right. And that is this family of chemicals. Um, so anywhere there's been a large industrial fire, airports, you'll find this chemical. Um, right. So this was an industrial fire site. We went out, put these microbes in the ground and it, you know, as an inventor, there's also this really fun epiphany moment where you realize you're out there, you're deploying these microbes into the ground and you have this, no one's ever done this before. We're the first people on the planet deploying into the real world, not just a lab, microbes that can eat this family of chemicals. So that was kind of a cool moment when you're just sitting out there in the middle of a field, uh, a big water tank of microbes next to you, some garden roses, um, you know, kind of high tech scientific pilot stuff, <laughs> but uh, you know, and in two weeks, we saw 60% of the PFAS in this real world aquifer gone, right? You know, there, there was, and that was really cool. Uh, and that was on a really small scale, 10 feet by 10 feet. Like this is a tiny, on the grand scheme of this acres of site, we were treating maybe a drop in the ocean. Um, so that was really fun. Of course, then since our first pilot, you say, okay, how do we refine what we've learned? You know, we've learned more about the oxygen requirements, the nutrient requirements, all these things the microbes need to work even better. And then in, you know, 2022 uh, or 2021, 2022, we were able to go to a different airport, uh, Dane County Airport in Wisconsin, 
which is a shared airport that's also a military base. It's partially Air Force. Um, they have a lot of PFAS, that's public record, that's well known. Um, we took one of their areas that was known to be contaminated and went back. We put microbes in the ground with everything we've learned since Alpina. And instead, we saw 97% removal of PFAS over the course of a year. So we watched our treatment area for a full year. Um, you know, what happens in winter? What happens in spring? What happens when there's rain? Um, all, all these different things. And, and we were able to see the microbes perform very well over the course of that whole study. Um, you know, 97% removal of something you can't break down. We were obviously really proud of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, so what is that what has that led to? Um, I mean, these these case studies are incredibly encouraging. Um, is this now leading to inquiries from the state of Michigan, for example, in, in other areas and saying, well, what else can you clean up? How do we scale this up? Um, and what does it look like doing it on a bigger scale? What what are you what are you seeing in that sense? Yeah, I mean, for the airport, for example, we're we're planning some larger scale uh, remediation there. So instead of just little pilot scale things where you're treating 5,000 tons of soil, we're now looking at how do you treat 50,000 tons of soil? Um, you know, coming up, there's lots of ways to do that. You can either do it in the ground, like we have been. Um, in remediation, you'll hear that referred to as in situ, so in place. Yeah. Um, we love that solution because it's low carbon footprint. Uh, you're not digging up all the soil, hauling it away, doing all this environmental disturbance. So anytime we can clean things up in the ground, we do. Um, we've also have options at that site to do what's called ex situ remediation, which means digging up that material, placing it in a big pile and treating it in a big pile. So it's contained, you kind of minimize other risk, yeah. um, but you have to move around the material. It's not as efficient. Um, so on that site, for example, it, what we're planning to do is on a big scale is really just bigger than what we did on small scale. So when we did these microbes on a small scale, we went out with drill rigs. Um, so, you know, just drilling vertical holes into the ground, uh, six yeah. inches wide. Uh, we put a pipe down there and we push in microbes and all the things they need to thrive, biochar, oxygen, everything, nutrients. Uh, we push that in under pressure. So it pushes out into the soil. Um, so to treat more soil, you just drill more holes uh, and you pump in more microbes. So it's it's a very scalable uh, technology because uh, you'll find a new technology. That's one of the hard parts is going from something that works in a Petri plate here in the lab to 50,000 tons of soil. Um, there's, there's a big difference there. So uh, kind of making sure what we do, again, can work on that scale is really paramount. Yeah. For sure. Um, and how, do you like long term talking at like a very high level? Um, do you see these microbes as having the potential to clean up the planet in a big scale and there and therefore like I mean, do do you do you see this ultimately as having an impact on how the environment is treated in the first place, or do you think that it may work the other way, whereby when the when big chemicals companies, for example, or big energy companies, or whoever it might be, they know that there's a solution at the end to clean stuff up, do you think that might lead to actually more 
destructive behavior because they know they're like, ah, well, it can be cleaned up in the end anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, so far what we've been seeing locally, we do a lot of, it's a lot of work in the oil and gas sector in British Columbia here and actually find once clients understand the science. So let's take topsoil as a really prime example. Um, if you go back and you look at a oil and gas site built in 1950, um, the topsoil is gone. It's been buried. It's been destroyed. It's been used for other purposes. And topsoil, a lot of people don't think of topsoil this way, uh, is actually a non-renewable resource, really. it's It takes geologic time to make new soil, right? Um, it's not just something, I know we all go to the garden store, we buy more, but it's a manufactured synthetic thing that was mined from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so you take these oil and gases from 1950, the soil's just gone. Uh, so you have to get really creative in how you restore those sites through microbes, composting, importation of other material. It, it becomes a really costly and difficult process. And then kind of in the 90s and 2000s, people got wiser. They started saying, well, we'll take the soil and we'll just throw it in a giant pile, right? So it's a step in the right direction, right? We're not burying it. We're not destroying it. Um, but it's still, in, it's not in the right conditions. So topsoil mm. needs oxygen to thrive, but 10 feet down in a topsoil pile on a site, there's no oxygen. It's been sucked up by microbes, other things, um, composting. And so you go, okay, it's a step. Now we're finding clients are saying, okay, we're now aware of how important biology is in soil. So they're actually getting them to call, they're starting to call earlier in their process and saying, we either know we have a problem on this site and we want to get ahead of it, or they're being more cognizant and treating the soil less like dirt, right? You know, the soil is a living, thriving thing. Yeah. And they're starting to treat it more and more like that. So I find so far, the more educated a lot of clients are, the more they're actually thinking ahead and saying, we can actually save money in the future yeah. by doing it right now. And they're right. actually kind of seeing that reward for doing it right now. Um, so it seems edu education... Uh, with clients and having a rational discussion about how to work with these materials is seems to be seems to be having a good impact. Uh, good, but there, I see what you mean. There is that risk where there are going to be there will be clients and there will be chemical companies who do worse things because now they've got a way to fix it. Uh, but hopefully, that's a small percentage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think if we if if the if the right amount of kind of critical mass of of public pressure can be applied at the same time. Um, and an awareness in the public of doing things right and ultimately as you say like it's creating more it's creating more value in the land that they own right doing it properly from the start like they they've they're ultimately not destroying the land and making it usable after whatever it is that they're currently using it for it's going to create it's going to be more valuable for for the owner i.e absolutely and, and the regulations are kind of catching up with the state of the world as well right so i mean Again, using local terms here, British Columbia, um, the laws have now said when you're when you're going back and you're trying to put an old well site to bed, um, you can't just throw grass seed on it anymore because that's not appropriate. These are sites out in the boreal forest, um, so covering it with lawn a lawn is just not appropriate. That doesn't make any sense because for a lot of biological reasons, that won't become forest again for many decades right it's well beyond our lifetime um so they said no you you actually need to deploy local native seed you can't just 
throw whatever out there and hope for the best. Um, yeah. We actually want to see spruce starting to grow on these things, fireweed, you know, uh, bluebells, things that are native to the land and from the land. Um, now, one, that's good for the environment. Two, as a business uh, dealing in plant growth and not just, you know, not just cleaning up pollution, but also making plants grow better. Native seed is actually really tricky <laughs> to get to grow on sites, right? Yeah. Um, so we've actually been using a lot of biology. It's actually the biggest thing we do right now uh, is using biology to help that native seed take. Um, you know, we've been packaging up native seed in little pills, literally pills uh, with microbes and nutrients and all the things that seed needs to thrive and putting that out on these, these old oil sites, pipelines, well sites, and we've been finding when we do that, the native seed has a much better chance of taking off because um, you're putting it right with microbes that help it germinate, plants that, or chemicals that help plants to have stress, nutrients. Um, and all of a sudden we're using biology to, to make these plants survive in what is a really challenging environment. Uh, yeah. You know, it might've been polluted once the soil's been moved around, the, the land's been disrupted, so. Mm. Indeed. Okay. So definitely some encouraging signs. I know a lot of the work you've done to date has been like very North America focused. Um, so dealing with regulation and environment in Canada and the US primarily. Um, how do you see this being applied more internationally? Um, even to like, for example, one area that springs to mind would be like in brazil around the amazon um i mean dealing with a regulatory environment which maybe is a little bit more challenging to operate in in these kinds of things than than north america um like first of all do you see it being as straightforward in an environment which is more kind of biodiverse and difficult to operate in like the amazon or uh, and indeed, are there difficulties that you see dealing with different regulatory bodies around the world, um, yeah. which which may present different kind of challenges of just from an awareness point of view? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the few, the couple things we have going for us um, that will help with that is, I mean, firstly, none of the organisms we're dealing with are genetically modified. Uh, or anything, um, not to say that I'm not anti-GMO, but in this case, nature has done the work for us. So the microbes we need to do the work are already out there. We just have to find them. We just have to show they work. Um, that alone skips a lot of regulatory hurdles. So you have different jurisdictions like Germany, France, uh, Australia, uh, which doing genetically modified things can become really, really challenging. Mm. Um, so that's kind of one hurdle we can we can avoid a little bit. The other is, is um, Trumpet earlier is doing kind of these microbes that are derived from a region or even a specific site. Um, so if we, we use Australia as a really prime example, if you're bringing any biological material into Australia, then it is not native or from Australia. It is a huge amount of legal hurdles to get through. They do not want their environment disrupted with something yeah. foreign. Um, so what can we do is this, this conglomerate of companies we're forming is well, we can go to Australia and we can isolate the microbes in Australia for Australia um, using 
processes we've developed in North America and proven out in North America, it's going to be the same process in Australia. Uh, it's just a matter of copying and pasting uh, that procedure with new plants and, and new microbes in a new place. Um, so the scalability and ability to move into new countries, um, you know, shouldn't be that bad. And, and the process of setting up a lab to to do that sort of thing, thankfully, is not if you know what you're doing, not terribly complicated. Um, you know, once you know the recipe of how to get these things, it's it's fairly straightforward uh, to to take that expertise and do it in other places. So, I think that will be really important for our group and what will allow us to scale differently than biotech companies that just take uh, one microbe and try and move it everywhere. Yeah. Um, it, but even if we're developing microbes in some of those places, you can still have challenges. So we'll take the United States uh, as an example. Uh, even the USDA and uh, FDA and all, to move microbes even across state lines uh, can require permitting mm. depending on the microbe and what that microbe does. Right. Um, so in agriculture in the US, we'll see more hurdles than we do even in Canada, even though they're fairly similar jurisdictions. So every jurisdiction, even uh, deploying microbes to remediate pollution uh, can have really, really big differences depending on the jurisdiction. Some jurisdictions, Ontario, uh, Michigan, uh, Alberta, uh, require permits to inject fluid into the ground. So if you're putting anything in the ground, even if it's a native microbe from that site, you need a a permit from that jurisdiction to do that. Other jurisdictions don't care. You just you're cleaning up pollution. We're happy, <laughs> right? You know, it's uh, so every jurisdiction requires some expertise. Um, the best thing you can do is find partners that you trust in those regions to help you work through that. And we've been very fortunate uh, over the years of doing this to have great partners all over the place uh, to make sure we can do what we do successfully. Excellent. Um, and long may that continue. Um, any final thoughts here, Tim? Anything that we didn't touch on that you you want to highlight on this topic? Yeah, I realized I probably talked a lot about pollution there. Uh, that's kind of been first and foremost in my mind for you know the past past number of years, given sure. the industry I'm in. But Under understandably uh, so. Yeah, and it's an interesting topic. Every chemical is different; they all behave differently. It's technically a lot of fun. Um, but we do do a lot of work in agriculture. Um, and this is something we've been piloting now for the past few years, a lot more going out to real world farms, taking these microbes that help plants thrive under stress and, and under less than optimal soil conditions. Um, Cause right now, I mean, any farmer will tell you fertilizer is expensive. Um, right. We've had fertilizer, fertilizer quotes anywhere from 50 to $200 an acre, depending where you are in the world. That's a lot of money if you're a farmer and you're farming a lot of acres. Um, so we said, well, microbes, going back to my master's work, helping plants survive in difficult places, uh, the soil and gas work we do. We said, well, let's, let's move to farms. What can we do for farmers? And we've been seeing some really good results using an affordable microbe product that we can get out on these farms on big scale. Um, you know, we've done a couple thousand acres this past year close to our office. Um, and we have farmers reporting 30% increases in their, their hay yields. Um, we've been doing these same microbes deployed on roadside trees. Because um, if you're a city, 
And you know, that big oak tree next to all those nice houses actually represents a lot of tax value. Right. So keeping that tree happy and healthy is super important to uh, a municipality. Uh, but living next to a road with oil drippings from cars, drought because the water can't get through the pavement, that's actually a really hard environment for a tree to live in. So we've been doing in some pretty big municipalities, some couple thousand trees a year. Um, we started dabbling in golf courses. So what you're going to see us be working on a whole lot in the next couple of years, next few months really, is pushing the agriculture side of the business as well. Um, we know the remediation side will is very successful. We've been thrilled with some of the work we've been doing uh, on dry cleaning fluids, PFAS, all these things. Uh, but those take a time to really grow and there's a lot of data that needs gathered. There's a lot of science to do. Right, right. For the plant grow side, we can be as a business for investors, for people listening to us from a financial standpoint, uh, that's a business that can grow much quicker and there's many avenues to explore. Uh, we're really excited for that. And it makes a real difference. Uh, you know, better crops, everyone eats, right? You know, we all eat food. So if we can make more food off the same land using microbial tools, uh, that's going to be really important and very, you know, to all of us, everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you, you've you've seen like the, the increased levels of interest in the food and agriculture industry in the last kind of 10 to 15 years with the advent of ag tech and food tech and all these different things, which are really just focused around um like how do we create more with less like you know we, we have a burgeoning population on the planet there's going to be too many people on the planet by like 2050 i think to feed in the ways that we currently farm food so the industry and and even those who weren't involved in it before uh, i think there's been a lot of increased interest in that in that regard um based on on some very simple facts so anything that can can increase yield from the land um, I think a lot of people have gone like too far and beyond with all sorts of different strange technologies when what you're doing is really just focusing on the soil itself um, and, and creating a healthy ecosystem in which crops can grow and ultimately be healthier for people as well, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that soil is a foundation. I think when we, you know, even if you go look at your, your lawn, your garden, um, people forget the foundation we build plants upon, right? I mean, if you have bad soil, you have a bad foundation uh, because that soil is not living. Uh, the nutrients aren't moving through it properly. Um, that's all due to, to microbiology, even, you know, all the way from bacteria, uh, mushrooms that are degrading old plant matter, getting that nutrient back in the soil, all the way to microscopic nematodes and worms and things. Um, if that's not all there, the soil stops functioning, right? right. Um, and you know, a lot of farming practices, you know, in, in the last century have been uh, destructive to soil because we said, well, we can overcome it with chemistry. We'll just yeah. throw fertilizer at it, problem solved. And I think the other thing people have to remember is fertilizers aren't are also are a non-renewable resource, right? We often talk about oil and gas as a non-renewable resource, but phosphate, yeah. uh, one of the three key nutrients for healthy plant growth is mined. It comes from mines. Um, it's a rock. Um, Sometimes those mines are in politically challenging countries. Um, and then, you know, what happens when we run out of phosphate deposits? Uh, and But we've required it because our farming practices dictate we have to use it. Uh, but there is phosphate in every soil. Uh, yeah. There's a study out there that says most farm fields probably have about 100 years 
worth of phosphate already in the soil, but it's in a form that's really hard for plants to get. But it's a form that biology uh, through lots of studies well before ours have shown microbiology can help make that nutrient available to the plant. Um, so again, this is taking some knowledge that already exists in the world into saying we actually need to use this knowledge. Let's find the microbes that are really good at doing this and get them on farm fields. Yeah, absolutely right, my friend. Um, well, Tim, I'm gonna we're gonna wrap it up here, but it was really really good having this conversation with you. Um, I hope this has been uh, interesting and beneficial to our listeners, um, and I'm very much looking forward to to working with you on scaling the company further um, and helping raise awareness for for what is a very noble uh, noble cause indeed. So. Um, Thank you so much, Tim. Um, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for the chance to talk. All right. Have a great weekend. You as well. Goodbye, everybody.